Hi, and welcome to a very special uh, bonus episode of The Gap. Uh, this is me reading the book, the novelette that I wrote, Do Not Kill. Uh, I'm Joe Gilroy. Uh, Luke isn't here because I'm not going to make him record a fucking intro for a book that I wrote. That's, that's I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very, very vain and self-centered, but I'm not that vain and self-centered. Um... Yeah, if you don't want to listen to my book, then just skip this episode. Uh, just skip ahead to the next one. There, it's just an extra thing in the mix. Uh, but if you do want to listen, then listen on. You've got about an hour and a half left. Uh, but that's about it. Uh, there's no intro music or anything like that. Just, yeah, here it is. I present to you my book. Thanks for listening. Do Not Kill by Job Gilroy. For Peter, wish you were here. I'm one part excited elation, two parts wary apprehension as the helicopter, the boring AS350, a helicopter I'd been in a thousand times, makes landfall the day we arrive at base camp for our expedition. Antarctica is the closest thing most of us will ever come to an alien planet, after all, and I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity to visit it. Paid to visit it, even. But the ice caps are melting, and Antarctica with them, and that's a harsh fact to ignore when you, your reason for visiting is to establish a deep core drilling and refinery operation, when the people paying for your trip are actively contributing to the problem. But a paycheck is a paycheck, right? And... This promise is the biggest payout I've ever seen. That's all you can really do something with if you have any ideas. And I'm long past retirement age already, finding it harder and harder to keep up with the young guys in the field and not really being the type to succeed at the politic and in the office. So here I am, with global weather getting less and less predictable and more and more extreme, it makes sense to go to a place where the conditions are always dangerously inhospitable. It's a game of variables. The fewer you have to manage, the easier your job is, and in Antarctica, the extremes only go in one direction. As long as you've accounted for that, you're fine. The other part that adds to my wariness, and I anticipate some upcoming weariness, is that my employers didn't send traditional types on this job. As the sole team member with actual petrochemical experience and a background in earth sciences, I have to admit to feeling like my job is as much babysitter as oil man. The leader of our group, Dr. Daniel Ford, is a computer geek, a mathematician type who tells me proudly that he's never been on an oil rig before. If you know the type, he looks like he couldn't be poured into a fight, a buck twenty dripping wet and liable to blow away with a southerly. And we're in a place where it's all southerlies. Then there's Claire Peters, another computer geek. Another skinny little thing you could lose her in her own shadow. She's got mousy brown hair pulled up into a ponytail and she reminds me of Sammy, my daughter. So I figure it won't be long before Claire doesn't want to talk to me anymore either. The last member of our team is Ben Kidd. Built like a silverback gorilla... He's a former combat medic turned fitness freak. He's with us to make sure we stay safe and get our macros, whatever that means, something food related. 
He's the picture of physicality, a big guy with a lot of swagger. Ford and Peters are coming with to look after a computer they reckon will be the future of the oil business, a phrase I can't help but smile at. I've heard that more times than I can count. It's a big piece of kit, the size of a six-burner grill, called the Computational Heuristics, some dumb bunch of words that spells out Chewiz, C-H-E-W-I-Z-40470. Chewy for short, another nerd joke. Ford declares loudly and proudly that Chewy is our fifth team member, and I have to close my eyes to hide them rolling so hard they threaten to alter the aerodynamics of the chopper. Ford declares loudly and proudly that Chewy is our fifth team member, and I have to close my eyes to hide them rolling so hard they threaten to alter the aerodynamics of the chopper. This whole generation chases one quick fix after another. I used it as an excuse to catch some shut-eye. The trip down was long, and it had been called on short notice, so it was a slog. Kid, Peters, and Ford had spent time together waiting for me to arrive, bunkered down at McMurdo Station on Ross Island for a few days. I had hopped straight off the behemoth C-17 and onto this cramped excuse for a helicopter before we'd even said hello. It was a shame, too. I'd spied some Bell 412s while landing, and... They're a much better chopper, but we wound up on this thing instead. From McMurdo, we'd flown inland for eight hours, with two stops at fuel caches along the way, to the refitted Bird Station, deep in the heart of Mary Birdland. We spent another hour flying to our airdrop prefab, where Ford had placed our mission at the base of Mount Tyree, latitude 7825 south, longitude 863 west. All up, I'd spent about six hours pretending to sleep and another six actually out. And it's still been better than flying from San Francisco to Christchurch in coach. At least Ford's robot baby didn't cry the whole way. It is January in the rest of the world, which means we land in the thick of Antarctica's six-month-long day. But even still, it's a lot colder than winter back home in Dallas. That makes it all the more frustrating when, instead of helping Kid and me with assembling the gear that would furnish our home for the next two months, Ford and Peters focus all their attention and efforts on the crate containing their computer. Kid's a real workhorse and he doesn't seem bothered, but it's half our workforce. Surely not dying from exposure is more important than being able to tweet. Truthfully, a lot of the work has already been done. That was the good thing about modern prefabs. They come with the essentials built in. Large domes pre-placed before I'd even been selected for this mission. They are prototypes of what astronauts would one day inhabit on the moon or Mars. The essential systems are all already intact. We just need to put together the stuff to make it livable. A lot of what Kid and I accomplish is checklist stuff. The last thing you want when a storm rolls through is to find yourself without power or lighting because storms in Antarctica can turn its long days into night. You're not necessarily connecting things, just making sure they are connected. And when you're done, you move on to the stuff the other guy checked. But if four people were doing the checking, it'd be done in half the time. The geeks could be fiddling with their damn computer with a heater on. Still, I avoid grumbling too much. I don't want kids to think of me as a whiner, as it seems like he'll be my only friend for the next eight weeks. With the heat on, Kid and I put together the flat packs... Beds first, of course. Still, I avoid grumbling about it too much. 
I don't want kids to think of me as a whiner, as it seems like he'll be my only friend for the next eight weeks. With the heat on, Kid and I put together the flat packs. Beds first, of course. Work continues long into the day, and each of us turns in at our own leisure. There's a case of whiskey in the rations, Kid. Not the good American kind, but some harsh scotch I've never had before. But it hits the spot good enough. I down a half a bottle, but putting the furniture together, and I turn in for the night more than ready for sleep. My sleeping area is an enclosed pod, just large enough for the bed and a shower. The toilet folds out from the wall like a Murphy bed for blowing mud, and I get the distinct feeling that the expectation is that I will use it exclusively for that. The pod, almost a cell, has individual climate control and the ability to shut out all external light sources. So when I go to bed, I wake up 11 hours later from one of the best sleeps of my life. Upon opening the pod door the next day, the unnerving side of a wholly outfitted station confronts me. I'd gone to bed leaving most things built, but now it's all arranged. So the view in my mind's eye forms a very clear before and after picture, as if I smash cut forward to hear something we prepared earlier. The most notable adjustment for the, to the lab is the chair in the center of the main room, a laid-back affair like something you'd see in a space-age dentist's office. I ignore it as I get some lunch. I'd missed breakfast, and I get to jawing with Peters and Kid. Peters isn't as nerdy as I'd thought on the helicopter. When I joined them, she and Kid are talking about football, and I slot into the conversation easily. Peters is confident she'll be able to get us a pirate stream of the Super Bowl, Though we're all less confident that any of our teams, my Cowboys, her 49ers, and kids Raiders, will be playing. Ford joins us to declare confidently that his Chewy would be able to upscale the stream to something watchable through the power of AI. But when I ask which team he backs, he takes more than a bit of time to say the 49ers hesitantly. I don't get to ask him to name a single player on the team before Kid asks what else Chewy is capable of and... That opens the floodgates. With the right inputs, Chewie is capable of anything, apparently. It's running the whole damn base camp, monitoring the climate control and the lights and even the doors, and that's not even using a recognizable fraction of its power, according to Ford. An AGI, as Ford corrects me, Chewie uses machine learning and neural networks and quantum leaps or something, an array of other buzzwords to execute code that doesn't currently exist or something like that. The explanation is long and tedious, and I struggle to stay focused throughout. The nuts and bolts of it is simple, though. All computers communicate with ones and zeros. Chewie can predict which ones and zeros come next. To a reasonable degree of accuracy, Peters quickly adds, once Ford pauses to breathe, Sort of the ultimate past performance as a predictor of future events system. Chewie can do basically anything provided it is given the correct information and context. So it can watch streams of NFL games at 720p, watch videos of it at 4K, and then combine and extrapolate the information to show a lo-fi input at 4K. Or they can feed it every chess move and outcome ever, and it will be an unbeatable opponent. Or, and this part held my attention, 
It can take ice core data from directly below us and combine the information contained within with seismic survey information taken from the Weddell Sea to determine the location of highly lucrative mining opportunities. The only problem it has is context. This thing doesn't know anything. It just knows how to use the information it's given, which is like any person, I guess. But it isn't built to go and find or combine information independently. It needs to be prompted almost every step of the way. You can, according to Ford, teach it to be the worst chess player in the world if you want it to. If you tell it that victory in chess is secured by committing the most moves while still inevitably sacrificing the king, Chewie will go out of its way to lead players into a protracted chess match while avoiding any chance of a stalemate. I don't care much for chess, but if it can make me look good at the game, I can get on board. It can also be programmed to perform in more complex games, but I stop paying attention when the three of them begin talking about something called Dodo. They get my attention again quickly enough, and it dawns on me that it's essential to them that I understand the system. It's almost like they're trying to provide me with context. The truth crashes into me seconds before they explain it out loud. They need me to provide their computer with context, to teach this AGI how to look for oil, rare earth minerals, or probably both. I'm not a babysitter, I'm a goddamn school mom. I'm only there to teach this computer how to how to do my damn job, how to how to put me out of a job. No wonder this gig is paying as good as it is. I'm furious that these nerds have lured me here to end my career, that I've traveled so far for basically nothing, that these computer geeks are taking a job that once belonged to the last real cowboys, and I'm supposed to help make it happen. For five goddamn decades, I've watched young bucks come in with newfangled ways to do my job, and I've watched them all fail, but it feels different this time. This time they sunk money, real money, into this effort. This time it feels like they think it will actually work. I'm spitting mad, but it comes out a chuckle at first and then full-blown laughter. Kid has the good sense to take a walk when he sees me processing the information. He's in on it and smart enough to know I'm angry, but Peters and Ford sit there staring at me like a pair of slack-jawed mules. They don't understand why I'm laughing. Hell, like most nerds, they probably don't understand basic human emotions. The joke is obvious once you know it. How the hell can I teach a computer anything when I can barely use a phone? I'd still be jacking off to skin mags if I hadn't saved the web page in my browser on my so-called smartphone. And they think I can teach a computer anything? I still type with nothing but my index fingers. That's when they tell me what the chair is for. A neural interface system. I can teach Chewie everything I know without needing to type a thing. That is the revolutionary element in Chewie's design, not its ability to learn or anything like that, which is apparently fairly common. But by sitting in their big dentist chair and wearing a goofy-looking helmet, I can teach the computer how to make me obsolete. Of course, I voiced my objections, but their hand waved away. I'm near the end of my career anyway, they say. I'll make more money than I know what to do with, they tell me. The mining industry will move in this direction eventually, at least this way, I'll get paid for it. But it's Kid who makes the most compelling argument. I leave the boffins in disgust and find him in the kitchen preparing dinner, even though it's hours away. He listens to me vent, nods thoughtfully as I do, and then when I'm done, he says quietly that 
men around my age die in less snow than what's outside every day and nobody bats an eye at it. He holds eye contact as he says all this, even while his hands expertly debone a chicken, his knife work precise and clean, his voice calm and steady. I stand there in front of him for a beat, and then I go and sit in the chair. What else can I do? I can object until I'm blue in the face, but that wouldn't take very long down here. The chair is surprisingly comfortable. Gel padding conforms to my body as I sit back in it. A cool feeling rushing through the areas where my skin makes contact. A nice contrast against the hot air pumping through the rest of the room. Motors whir and lumbar support shifts until the seat compensates for years of fishing our drill string by hand and pigging at all awkward angles. And I'm overcome by a sensation that must be cl as close to weightlessness as you can get without being in zero G. Is the most comfortable I've ever been, except when they dope me up to do my knee reconstruction. The other three seem pleased. Chewie is controlling the chair, they tell me, learning from subtle shifts in my ergonomic behaviors to accommodate me without my actively thinking about it. Learning from the input I give it so that it can predict how to adjust before I even need the adjustment. Peter says I can buy one of these when we're all done. I'll have that kind of money and, of course, the right connections. Sitting in the chair, floating in the void, that actually sounds pretty good. Teaching the machine what I know involves wearing a helmet-type device, a heavy thing that with eyepieces that press close to my face before self-adjusting outwards to allow for my glasses. It's heavy, but miniature fans within keep my head cool, and before I can even mention the heft of it, the seat reclines to take the weight, and I can't feel it again. With the helmet on, it's as if I'm working on the largest computer monitor in the world. Anywhere I look, there is more monitor. It's overwhelming. And it's similar, but not exactly the same as computers I've used before. There is a bar like you usually find at the bottom of your screen, but here it hovers forever at the bottom of my view. Unless I focus on it, then it centers for me. But there are no little squares to click to bring up the apps, just a search bar and a little penguin sitting in the bottom left corner. Out of nowhere, hands grab my own. Gentle, soft hands, so one of the nerds, and I slip a plastic set of rings over my fingers, like flimsy knuckle dusters. Suddenly I can interact with the world in front of me. It seems to anticipate my movements. When I grab something, it opens a window. When I wave it away, it closes. Before I can open a browser and try to remember my favorite website to see it stadium-sized, I hear Ford talk to me from somewhere else. They can see everything I can see and provide me with anything I need while I teach the AGI my entire career. I just need to ask and somebody will bring it. Out of nowhere pops a wall of data as high and wide as I can see. I quickly realize the data is my own. Analyses I'd analyzed, corrections I'd made, pages upon pages of reports I'd submitted detailing my findings on expeditions just like, well, nothing like this one. I spend hours simply reacquainting myself with this lifetime of hunting dinosaurs and I formulate a plan. If this machine is all about context, then maybe I can teach it wrong. But I need to be careful. Surely Kid, Ford and Peters will be looking for anything overt, such as framing oil or something to hide. But if I can teach it to be poor at using the data, I'll get my paycheck and walk away with my job too. 
The data set I decide on skewing is density, and I don't intend on any grand change. I want to encourage the machine to hunt down areas where the density of the Earth, as reflected by the seismic survey data, will result in an underground cavern. If I can contextualize emptied reservoir rock as empty area, the computer should hunt for all underground pockets. I'm here with two nerds and a thug, not oil people. I figure this will throw them off well. Making the link is simple enough. The computer works with me on it, reading my intentions and making links between data before going back and creating those same links in the rest of the set. I go through a fraction of it, correct the connections where necessary, and the computer automatically makes the adjustments. If all computers were like this, I'd have been using them long ago. Six hours pass, the smell of dinner breaking my focus on the data and making me painfully aware of how much I need to use the bathroom. I speak aloud for the first time since the helmet went out on, croaking out a request for assistance. It takes longer than I like. I really needed to go. But soon I'm extricated from the helmet and chair and finger mounts and back in the real world. After dinner, I jump back into the helmet and get back to it. Chewie is smart and does incredible stuff with the data and context I provide, but it's prone to making mistakes that fifth graders wouldn't. It jumps to conclusions based on numbers it doesn't have, and it's annoying trying to trace back through the math to work out where its first mistaken leap was. It's easy, but intricate. I fall asleep in the chair, the process more mentally taxing than it seems, and I wake the following day still in it. Ford brings me coffee and a breakfast burrito so I don't have to get out of the chair, not realizing how much those things would make me need to get up pretty soon after. The next few days play out the same. The chair is more com comfortable than any bed, so I wind up spending entire days in it. I learn to remove myself and put myself back into the chair without help, and while I'm using the machine, I get very good at sorting and, and contextualizing the data. I rarely see Peters or Kid as they're in some other part of our small base. Ford tells me watching me sort out data is very boring to anyone not able to appreciate the brilliance of Chewy from the outside. On day six, I wake and Ford recommends I take the day off from the machine. My body is sore when I'm not in the chair, but it seems like a good idea. I don't want my eyes to go square. Peters and Kid take turns in the chair and the thing appears to be smart enough to adjust to each of them automatically. Ford doesn't hop in and spell, spends hours grilling me over my experience with it. I'm not much help. Not because I don't want to be, I just don't know what to tell him. It's a good experience. It feels comfortable and it seems smart. It's easy to use. I'm not smart enough about computers to tell him what he wants to hear and he's not smart enough about people to ask the right questions. What's weird is I want to get back into the machine. I could have wrapped up yesterday, but I intended to spend today making sure my deceit was waterproof. And the chairs out here are uncomfortable, and there's very little to do in this place if I'm not using the machine. Then Kid comes lumbering in with a tablet in his hand, holding it high and shaking it, excitedly declaring Chewie has already found oil. That he'd asked Chewie to output a guess based on the data I'd been submitting, and Chewie came back with a 99% certainty. He's ecstatic because not only has it already found something, the potential site's only a couple of hours' hike away. 
If we could tap the oil this week, we wouldn't even need a pirate stream at the Super Bowl, Kid declares. He'll get us a private jet and box seats at the game itself. We leap into action to get our gear together, but Kid recommends we wait to leave until after we've all slept. I can't sleep in my bed anymore, so I hop back in the machine. The chair quickly readjusts to my body as if it knows I'm the one sitting, and before I fall asleep, I check the data. I can see at a glance that it won't lead to a reserve, but only because I know exactly what to look for. Chuya has otherwise made a very convincing guess with no wild leaps of logic or errant math. I fall asleep confident in the knowledge that we'll be debunking Chewie's ability this time tomorrow. The hike is uneventful. The weather is clear, the sun out, and the temperature is threatening to break 40. Inside my heavy jacket, I can feel a sweat coming on. It's not hard walking, but it's more demanding than a regular stroll. Each of us is carrying some essential boring equipment alongside our survival gear. Kid insists on making sure we leave with more than enough to survive if things go bad. And my knees aren't what they were. The snow isn't deep, halfway up my shins at most, but I need to lift my feet a little higher than usual to get through it and I'm starting to feel it. Nobody else seems to have any trouble, so I make sure and keep it to myself. I distract myself by looking at the landscape, miles and miles of white, sure, but it rolls and juts and spikes in the most fascinating ways. And on our grid west, you have to be careful using cardinal directions when you're this far south, there are massive walls of ice and rock, ancient things that will outlast all of us, craggy and imposing. The world actually has an edge and we're trudging just below it. I'm lucky to be here, to do what I do, to experience what most people will never. It isn't quite space travel, but with the way the world is trending, odds are good more people get to do that than see this. We reach our destination soon enough. The coordinates lead us to a small cave in the side of Ellsworth, a dark place that feels much warmer than it should, where the ground is actual dirt, not ice and snow and earth in equal measures. There's an odd little hole in the wall, the sides glossy smooth in places, dark like obsidian. Part of me wants to investigate further, but I keep my focus on track instead. Kid is quick to come to terms with operating the equipment. He may be a trained medic, but he has a natural aptitude for physical labor. Peters and Ford are, of course, of no use. They don't even seem interested. The pair are staring at Ford's laptop, again fawning over their computer instead of helping us do any setup. It isn't a big problem anyway. This isn't life or death stuff. We just need to confirm that Chewie is wrong and we can all be on our way. There is a cabin here somewhere beneath our cave and if we can breach it, it'll be obvious the machine doesn't understand how to see oil on a fundamental level. And that will be that. The bore we're using is a 35mm effort, retrofitted with a drill string system far lighter than anything I've ever used. Titanium, maybe, but it feels too light even for that. Putting all the pieces together is simple enough, and operating the thing is so simple the nerds don't even need to enlist a robot. If there was oil under us, whoever was working the bore would get drenched, so I tell Kid to do it. The thrill wears off the tenth time you find yourself cleaning oil out of your ears three weeks later. I tell him. He buys it. Who wouldn't? The drill punches through the cap far quicker than expected. 
sending a gust of high pressure air, not the pungent gas that might accompany shale, but stale air out with it. Black rain doesn't follow, and even having prepared for it, I can't be sure how convincingly I sell my confusion and disappointment. But Kid is preoccupied with his genuine disappointment, and Peters and Ford barely look up from their computer, no doubt trying to work out what went wrong. I help Kid retrieve the drill string and hand out some empty platitudes about how tricky drilling can be, how it's a science but not an exact science, about how if there were a method to stare at some data and immediately drill into untapped mud, I'd have been a rich man long ago. For about 10 minutes, I sell the idea that the computer can't do it because it just can't be done at all. Kid doesn't say much for a while. He stands there, his big lips pouting as I dismantle and pack up the bore again. When I finish, he unleashes a screed of expletives at Ford about his useless computer and made-up job about how we're, we're out here wasting months of his life in a barren, frozen desert. With his giant frame, massive hands, and bulging eyes, he cuts quite the terrifying figure. Ford doesn't shrink before the tirade, instead waiting for a moment between cusses and seizing his opportunity to interrupt. Ford tells Kid the position is probably correct. Chewie doesn't make mistakes, he says, and it takes a great deal of concentration to not burst out laughing. Ford continues explaining that we punched through too early. There must be an underground cavern, and beginning our bore at the bottom will yield the results we want. I go from hiding a smile to hiding a grimace. I should have expected Ford to do anything to make his computer seem correct. The next day, we return to the cave with climbing gear in hand. The dogs drag along a shard of Chewy on a sled, a fragment of the machine or something, and a satellite dish-looking apparatus they had stayed up all night setting up. Neither had slept at all. I don't want to help, but I don't feel like having a conversation about why, so I take my turn as a sled dog as we trudge back to the cave. It slows the trip only a little, and the weather is good, and I'd had kids strap my knee, so it doesn't wind up inconveniencing us all that much. They also brought the helmet interface in case I wanted to refine my data, they say. Back at the cave, we use the generator that's powering Chewy, a hyper-efficient, lightweight solar battery system, which nobody except me sees the irony in, to flood the space with lights, and we discover it's much larger than it had first seemed. The walls are not obsidian, as Ford had mused yesterday, but tachylite. The brownish hue to it's sheen, a dead giveaway. But there's no telling that to a know-it-all like Ford. There's a crack in the wall towards the back of the cave, camouflaged in the darkness, invisible from most angles due to the way light reflects off the unusual stone. The only reason I spot it is thanks to the hyaloclastic formation around its edges. An impossibility, yet there it is, the fragments of clear sideromelane catching the eye slightly differently compared to the iron-rich tachylite. A torch quickly reveals a great deal more cave beyond the fissure, though even the powerful halogen lamp can't penetrate to a real wall. It'll be safer, I know, to knock through the brittle tachylite than to attempt to spelunk through a hole in the floor, and both Peters and Ford agree. Kid, undoubtedly an expert rock climber alongside his other talents, seems hell-bent on sticking with the original plan until I show him how much easier knocking through the tachylite is compared to our cave floor. 
I don't need to knock down much to create a space large enough for us to walk through. Kid insists on going first, his posture defensive as he sidles through the gap I created. The others follow and I hop through last. On the other side stands a vast empty chamber, the ground unusually flat. The others don't seem to notice, but with formations of stalactites above us, it is unusual to see no stalagmites peppering the ground. Something about the rock in this chamber dulls echoes too, so that our voices don't reverberate back at us. Another factor my colleagues seem oblivious to. They are, in their defense, probably more concerned with what looms down the other end of the chamber. There stands a three-story high archway. I'm last through and Kit is blocking my view of it, so I don't see it immediately, but once I do, I can't think of anything else. An archway of near impossible proportions, too narrow to be structurally sound and standing independent of the cave walls and rooftop around it. It has to be ten times higher than it is wide, a great stone thing with no clear joins and engraved with markings that resemble no language I've ever seen. Sharp angles make up the letters carved in the stone. Ford and Peters marvel as they get closer, the two of them talking at a million miles an hour, both over one another as they try to get all their thoughts out. Kid looks ready to pitch a fit, but his mood lightens when he sees that the archway stands before a path which leads deeper into the cave. I follow him, leaving the nerds their arch, and I can't help noticing that our journey down through the mountain features the remnants of steps, as in stairs, carved footholds in the rock below to give the climber purchase as they make their way up or down. Evidence of design. It's hard to describe how something so outwardly mundane fascinates me so much. Unlike the arch, these steps aren't built, they're carved, which might account for their state of wear, but the idea of them at all is jaw-dropping. The dorks, who come through eventually, go wide-eyed at the sight of the formations and they study them too. When the three of us finally stop looking at the small lines on a ramp and follow it to its end, we are greeted by the silhouette of kids standing dead still at the end of the tunnel we followed, facing away from us. Not moving, not seeming to breathe, painting him with the torch shows him inert at the edge of a drop. We call out to him, and he doesn't even flinch, doesn't seem to hear us at all. The magnitude of our situation dawns on me, and fear grips me and Ford and Peters all at once. The more I study Kid from this distance, the more scared I become. He is standing rigid tall at the edge, his face pointing down over the side, his muscles straining and bulging even more than they usually do. Together, the three of us move closer to him, inching really. I play out in my mind what might have him so rigid, and the thoughts only make moving closer that much harder. Eventually, the torch shows that he is breathing but mere moments after that realization do I see what has him captured so completely. Over the edge of the ridge stands an entire network of hut-style buildings, black, brown, and glossy like the cave up above. A cityscape, and Kid is standing at the edge of a bluff overlooking it. A cityscape in Antarctica, as far away from all other life as can be, so remote that just being here has us living in habitats made for life on other planets to be near it. The arch could have been, uh, I don't know, a prank or an art installation or something. The stairs might have been just apophenia, the oil man's constant companion, like Jesus in a tortilla. 
our minds simply extrapolating what we wanted to see in natural formations. But this is an entire town, impossibly made from volcanic glass and set inside a mountain where nobody can live. A path, again bearing the telltale steps, carves its way down to the village. I follow it, suddenly in the lead, walking without real purpose, almost sleepwalking, as my mind flits from one impossible feature to the next. The buildings, huts basically, exist as seemingly single pieces without visible joins between walls, roofs, or even the ground each one stands upon. It's as if they have been formed up from the earth itself, shaped from lava and then blast chilled in place. There's an odd sensation to walking through the village. There's a pattern I can't define, like a magic eye puzzle where the image won't make itself apparent. The huts have no doors or windows, but the holes for them exist. The materials must have rotted away over the centuries or millennia, I, I don't know. Some buildings are larger than others, with larger doors and windows too. The rock used in the construction is... I'm not a science guy, but I know rocks and it shouldn't exist. Volcanic glass de-vitrifies. De it loses its shape and form, but if this is as old as it appears, it hasn't done anything like that. As if this place wasn't impossible enough, the only way to achieve stability in these structures would be to supercool it to bypass the formation of crystals in the rock. The path slicing into this cavern leads directly to the center of town, where a gathering area sits, perfectly flat and square, its black mottled glass reflecting the torches on our headlamps to illuminate the, its surroundings brightly. Another trick of optics and engineering I can't quite put my finger on. All of it is overwhelming in a way that I've only cried twice before now, but I don't know if my eyes haven't blinked in too long or if the emotion of what we're seeing is too much, but I can feel tears streaming down my cheeks. The quiet awe of this overwhelming discovery, my discovery really, is shattered as kids' emotions also come to head. And instead of being awed, instead of being humbled or excited or even terrified, he is angry, furious. This discovery is, he declares, an unmitigated disaster. Fubard, he says, among other things, on a scale that he never even thought possible. Kid and Ford fight, not physically, that'd be one-sided, but Kid declares that we had to turn back, report on the finding, and determine our next steps without disturbing the site as soon as possible. Ford has his laptop out, as he almost always does, and is documenting things, and Kid doesn't like that at all. We don't know how upper management will react and we should hold off putting anything on the record before we check in, he says menacingly. Ford refuses to stop documenting things, though. I think Chewie is learning via the laptop. So Kid snatches the computer from him and throws it Frisbee-style as far as he can. It does not survive the experience. None of us react the way he wants, however. I know this isn't what we were supposed to find, but I can't stop looking at all of it. And Ford and Peters are the same. Kid throws his hands up in disgust and storms back out of the cabin, ranting and raving as he climbs the unnatural steps about how we are wasting his time and our own. Ford waits for the giant of a man to leave our line of sight before he pulls out his phone and begins documenting things with it instead. He's getting up close to the huts and it's not until I get closer that I see why. Some of the walls have engravings on them in the same odd script we'd seen on the arch above. 
I don't notice any similarities, but Ford says Chewy is building a translation algorithm with each new word. I can't imagine how, myself, didn't the Rosetta Stone require a starting point? But that's Chewy, I guess. It's hard not to believe in magic when standing in front of a house of someone who built things out of lava. The houses are mostly empty. Furnishings and other items that were generally made of biodegradable materials then. But we still find a few more artifacts. Bowls and plates, also etched with this strange alphabet, were occasionally accompanied by pictograms of animals, all of them fish of different sizes. Chewie can't work out what they mean yet, but Ford is confident it will eventually have enough context to put something together. Ford explains how the village exhibits a perfect mirror image of itself on the y-axis across the breadth of itself. It isn't flat, but shifting up and down almost imperceptibly in height as we move from one structure to the next. I kick myself for not noticing it until I realized Chewie had probably told him. As the wonder of it all begins to wane, my thoughts turn to Kid. What does he think can be done about this place? Is undoubtedly a find of such magnitude that he, he can't think to simply cover it up. A cover-up of why we were looking here was a good idea, but the find itself is too big, too monumental. And this is a good find for him all the same. A deep clean of our backgrounds, some media coaching for the nerds so they know how to dodge the tough questions, and we're fine. Hell, I can probably swing this as a reason to keep seismic surveys going around the world. Me, me and Chewie can go hunting for other pangeanic lifeforms or some such. My idle daydreaming is interrupted by a cry from Ford. It carries easily across the village, the surface is doing little to dampen sound down here, but when I find him, he is silent. He's standing in front of a hut unlike any of the others. For one, it's smaller than the rest and lacks the conical roof the others use to funnel smoke up and out through the centerpiece. But most interestingly, this one has an intact door. The terror I'd felt when I'd seen kids standing at the precipice overlooking the town returned in a flash upon looking at this tiny cube, but I shove it down. More words are carved to the side of the door, but Chewie's still working on translating it. The door has no handle, lock, or visible pivot point, just the unmistakable seam in a shape that resembles, well, a door. I'm hesitant to touch it, but I can see that neither Ford nor Peters have the stomach for it, so I reach out a hand and push, and nothing happens. There wasn't even any give, any indication that I'd interacted at all. I slide my pocket knife down the seam the way you might a credit card, carefully feeling my way around the edges, looking for any interaction at all. There's no collision on the right-hand side, but the knife strikes something on the left. I retrieve the blade and place it in again at the bottom, feeling my way up and close to the same point it had collided before it does so again. I slowly insert the knife in between the two collision points and it goes in, stopping after about an inch and a half. I look back at Peters and Ford, both faces a mixture of fear and excitement in equal measure, and I wiggle the knife up and down as I press it deeper, trying to find something for it to catch on. The blade is nearly to its hilt when it bites in, catching on something deep within, and I can feel a lateral tension to the engagement. I reason that, as the door is on the left side, the knife should turn in that direction too. I twist the hilt, 
the torque straining the join between the blades farther than the handle. It turns all the same, however, and I can pull the door to the room open with my pocket knife acting as a makeshift doorknob. I am not ready for what is within. Before the door stops swinging, I see it. We all do, gasping in unison at the sight. A body sits against the wall adjacent to the door, spectacularly mummified. Yet again, another impossibility in this cavern of the unthinkable. A million moments from a million horror films race through my imagination at the being before me because it isn't human. It's humanoid, I guess, but its head is giant, squished flat at the sides, its eyes too close together for the size of it. The rest of its features are normal, I guess, or normal for a mummified being anyway, as a too long neck and a desiccated body. It's naked, and I can't determine whether it had been sealed in such a way or if its clothing had disappeared with time. Why would the body stay if the clothes did not? I hear a sharp gasp from Peter's beside me, the first noise any of us has made in who knows how long. I look over to see her grasping at her neck, and my mind jumps to ancient alien diseases, airborne pathogens trapped with some ancient big-headed mummy. But then she points at the creature before us, and I see it. Its neck isn't unusually long. Its head is severed from its body, held above the rest of its corpse on an obsidian platform. I follow the form of the platform along to see that it is attached to a handle, an axe lodged in the wall, separating this being's head from its body. My curiosity too much, I steel myself and step through the doorway into the room. I wait for oblivion to take hold, for some ancient curse or prehistoric lava trap to smite me for crossing the threshold, or for the axe's owner to lurch out and grab me. No such thing happens. It is a room. Like the others, but without windows. The light from my headlamp bounces around in here as it did elsewhere in the village, illuminating everything, and I can see that it's just a relatively empty room really. Just the body, the axe, some more odd lettering, and on one wall, a maze. The maze is fascinating. Line after line after line, jutting its way up and around the wall and then looping in on itself, it covers every inch of the rightmost wall of the vaults. It's etched in the stone in clean lines with a mechanical, almost surgical precision. There is an order to it. I can practically picture the graph paper over the top of it to plot its exactness. Every line up or down, across or down is the same length or a multiple of that length. There's a problem, though, as the bottom right of the maze is gone. Not faded, like paper left in the sun too long, but smashed in, destroyed with the sort of carelessness we haven't seen elsewhere in the village. Where things were not as they should have been down here, it was through dissolution, not destruction. It makes charting the maze's path in its entirety impossible. The entirety does not exist. Ford theorizes that Chewie can probably resolve an answer for us and he processes the wall into his magic machine. Chewie can do anything, as always. I stop rolling my eyes when Peters tells us to both get out of the vault. Chewie's translation algorithm has evidently kicked in and the letters scrawled on the back wall are now legible and Peters is concerned. Do not kill, they read, sitting just off to the side of the disconcertingly decapitated alien-looking mummy. Concern warranted, in my opinion. With the translation system now online, we head back through the village to read more of the lettering. There are celebratory bowls and ceremonial cups made from the same odd inert glass as the rest of the village. 
I resist the temptation to pocket a cup. Part of me is still scared of some sort of curse. What can I say? I grew up with old pulp books. I didn't have 4K TV, just books about mummies and curses, and I don't fancy myself Alan Quatermain. Peters suggests we go check on Kid. I check my watch and realize we've been down here for hours. If you'd told me we'd been here for mere minutes, I could have believed it. I don't feel like a man has been wandering around without taking a break for a full working day. If Antarctica had a regular day-night transition, the sun would have set by now. I close the vault back up before we leave. It doesn't seem like a good idea to leave it exposed to the elements further. I suddenly feel the hunger I've been ignoring previously, a tight alarm in my stomach alerting me to my negligence. It seems that Peters and Ford might be feeling the same because we climb back to the cave above with a unanimous urgency. The cave is pitch black when we return, an eerie sight. Ford and Peters quickly rush over to their baby, the shard of Chewy, but I can hear what is wrong before I can see it. A blue norther rages outside, the icy wind howling as it rushes across the mouth of the cave. Snow and sleet whip through the opening, but the warmth radiating from within our hollow keeps it open and clear. Peters explains that the shard has rerouted power away from the lights to keep itself online while the sunlight outside is obscured. This must be some storm, too. It is like night for the first time since we'd come to this continent. Peters and I put together a dinner using our ration packs, simple MRE-type stuff. I'm having chicken curry. While Ford frets over how to create a connection between the shard and its mainframe or master PC or whatever it's called, the machine back in our primary site. The storm, it seems, has knocked out all communication with the outside world. It isn't really anything to do about it beyond waiting out of the storm, though. The communications dish is still set up, so we just have to ride it out. Chewie predicts this weather event will last for days, and the estimate rises every time Ford rechecks the forecast. I even start rechecking myself, using the helmet to find out how long Chewie thinks we'll be stuck here. A week now. I'm not looking forward to a week of sleeping on the ground. Still, after such a huge day, I have little trouble drifting off. I've been asleep for an hour or two when Kit returns, covered in snow, his many halogen torches brightly illuminating the cave. I get up to see if he needs any help, but he doesn't. Of course he doesn't. He shrugs off his gear and bellows at Ford to get up. Ford obliges, sitting up and watching in horror as Kid severs the comms cable connecting Chewie and the satellite dish set up with his climbing axe. Ford scrambles from his sleeping bag and across the cave, but the damage has already been done. Before Ford can utter a word, Kid points the axe at him and growls out his explanation. We have to destroy any and all information about the cavern below. No news of our discovery can make it out. The storm hit before Kid had made it back to our main base and he hadn't been able to communicate with home, but standard operating procedure dictates that we ignore any findings and carry on with the extraction process, collapse the cavern and drill through. It's true, too. I'd been there before in Queensland, in Peru, and I'd heard of it happening in Mongolia. When we find sites of archaeological importance, if we can destroy them before anyone knows, we'd do so. If we can't destroy them in time, we organize for vandals to desecrate them. But those cases were different. They'd been some cave scribbles or a clay pot, not a fully intact village, not a mummified alien corpse. Peters attempts to argue, though I can tell she doesn't know about the precedent we'd set elsewhere in the world. 
and I can tell by kids' dismissals that he doesn't want her to know either, so I keep my yap shut. He does pause at the words alien corpse, but only for a moment. Obviously, we need to ignore these findings anyway, he says, because if we don't, it will be catastrophic for the Chewis project. Nobody misses the implied threat underscoring his point. The more I think about it, the more I agree with Kid anyway. I just... I'm a simple oil man. I don't want to tour around as some alien finder. I definitely don't want people diving into my past, digging up my skeletons. And if we pave over the most significant scientific discovery of the last 1,000 years and Chewie still doesn't find oil, well, I mean, what better case against the machine than that? And Kid, standing there with the climbing axe, certainly cuts an imposing figure. He would without the axe, really. Before it disagrees, this find proves Chewie is capable of rapidly adapting and analyzing data in ways we'd never before even dreamed of, he explains. Chewie is translating an alien language on the fly, measuring rock composition at a glance now. This discovery proves that Chewie is more than just an AGI, he says, alongside some more of his typical $5 word horseshit that is my cue to tune out. But before I can, he points in my direction and declares that any idiot can find oil using that data. I could do it, he says, if I cared to look at the data properly. The little know-it-all finishes by saying that using Chewy to search for oil now is like using an x-ray machine to find out what's in your pockets. That the village is everything. Peters interjects to say that the arch could suitably stand as evidence of Chewy's greatness, of Chewy's ability to adapt and learn with the barest amount of context. We can relocate the arch to some other cave and show Chewy learning from it. It would be even more impressive without the extra context provided within the village. And Chewie will still fulfill his primary mission goals. Ford yells at her to shut up. Yells about how of course she sides with him. About how once again the intellectual needs to compromise for the dipshits. About how progress takes a backseat to the status quo because it makes some meathead uncomfortable. Kid's face grows dark and he starts marching on Ford. The smaller man shuts up and starts backing away into the cave as Kid closes the distance, asking why we even need Ford anymore. Peters knows how to operate Chewie. I know how to use the data. What do we need Ford for? Why does the village need to be the only thing we bury here? Hell, Ford wouldn't even be found. We'd all say Ford wandered out into the storm and must have gotten lost. Case closed. Ford stammers out some weak rebuttals as he walks deeper into our cave. His back hits the wall and he sidles along until he finds the gap I made earlier and he starts to squeeze his way through it without ever taking his eyes off Kid. But he continues to argue his case, refusing to give up on the idea of preserving the village. It seems to me like it's already done. Kid has made up his mind. He probably brought back explosives with him in that giant bag of his. Kid bellows out a laugh as Ford retreats through the gap, pointing out that we are going to level the place and bury him in it anyway. What difference does it make if he's alive when he's buried? I want to look away, but I can't. I want to say something, but nothing comes to mind. Ford finds the right words, though, uttering something I can't make out. Kid grabs him by the shirt and roars at him to repeat himself, and Ford says it again. There's no oil here, Ford declares. There's no oil under the village, the yellow fink mules. There never was any oil. 
kid yanks him out of the cave wall and throws him one-handed back towards me and Peters before demanding to know what Ford is talking about. Peters says she doesn't know and I copy her as kid stalks in our direction. I look at Ford and he looks away quickly, too quickly, and I know the jig is up. He starts telling kid that I taught the computer wrong, that the data I told Chewie to look for was for caverns, that it had always been for caverns. But oil doesn't exist in underground pockets. It's not in a well in that sense. Oil is extracted from solid earth. Ford points at me and tells the murderous kid that I deliberately taught Chewie to look for the wrong thing. Kid's eyes bulge with rage, his big nostrils flaring, his thick neck tensing as he focuses the full attention of his anger on me. Have I really wasted everyone's time? He asks rhetorically. He rushes me, closes the distance between us instantly, and grabs me by the throat, his giant hand easily clasping around it. I'm paralyzed with fear, but soon enough I'm moving as he throws me towards the mouth of the cave. I'm in my pajamas, and the cold of the storm raging outside whips its way around me as it tries to breach the natural heat of the rock. I stumble to the ground, and he pounces on me, holding me down with ease, screaming about how I wasted his time, everyone's time. How I've been a burden on the mission already, an old man needing old man support. How I'm not even a dinosaur because at least they can get oil from dinosaurs. With each new accusation, I can feel his grip tighten and his focus loosen. He begins shaking me while holding me down and yelling about how racist boomers like me have held society back for years. I can tell he's building up the hate and anger to kill me, convincing himself that I need to die violently. I attempt to fend him off, but he bats my hands away like the stalks of wheat. Is swearing now and shaking me hard enough that my head smacks into the ground below, rattling my teeth with each impact. I reach up again, knowing that I'll die if I can't stop him, and when he flicks at my arm, I move it quickly, snaking it around his. My hand finds his face, and I grab at his cheek with all my might, my short nails digging in but failing to break the skin. I reach up higher, and he growls at me, animalistic and terrifying. His hands shift to my throat as he screams at me to die, and the pressure from each hand is immense. My hand slips higher up his cheek, sliding across his cheekbone, and even as my world grows dim and my head feels like it might burst from the buildup of blood within it, I manage to push my thumb into his eye socket, digging it in underneath his left eye with everything I have in me. Kid screams as the wetness of the eyeball coats my thumbnail, and he rears back away from me, my hand slipping back off his face. He then starts raining blows on me, big haphazard hammer fists as he strikes anywhere I'm not actively protecting. The pain is so immense that even adrenaline can't ward it off and I alternate between trying to push him off me and covering my face. I can feel blood running down my face, taste its coppery as it pools in my mouth and trickles down my throat. That causes panic to set in and Sends my arms flailing wildly. I can tell my death is imminent now. I am keenly aware of how impotent I am to stop it. I can't even choke out and gargle out. A plea for help or mercy. Just lie there waiting to find out if I'll drown in my blood or be beaten unconscious first. It's odd then that even over the roar of blood rushing through my body, as overwhelming a sound as that it seems, I can still hear the wet slap that causes Kid to stop beating me. Even through blood, tears, spittle and sweating, I can see Ford standing behind him with the climbing axe, one, one end of it now bloody from where it was socketed 
and kid's brain. Beyond the pain of my injuries, I can feel the dead weight of this giant of a man collapsed upon me, the life of him gone in an instant, his blood streaming freely from the back of his skull down off his bald head and into my face. And as the adrenaline dumps its way out of my system, so too does any ability on my part to stay conscious. The last thing I see before I black out is Ford standing there, a small spatter of blood across his face, staring solemnly at what he's done. Awake with a pounding headache, my ribs sore, my breath short, my knee burning with pain, but I'm alive and I'm happy to be. Peters and Ford had done some basic first aid and they'd moved me back to the warmth of the deep part of the cave and they saved my life and I'm grateful to them for it. Ford apologizes for fending Kid in my direction and blames it on his cowardice. That seems fair, but in recalling how it felt to be the subject of Kid's anger, I can't bring myself to blame him all that much. He explains that he'd always known I'd fudged the numbers, that he was a computer and data analyst for an oil company, so of course he'd known, but that he himself didn't want Chewie to find oil either. The company we work for has the funding to support something like Chewie, however, and they were reaching a point where they were desperate enough to try anything to maintain their grip on the energy sector. So he'd gotten funding for Chewie, and then I'd made it so Chewie would be better utilized on other projects, and he'd been happy to let it happen. Peters and Ford aren't on the best of terms now. They don't speak much, speaking around one another when they don't have to, otherwise waiting till the other is out of earshot to talk. Peters had known what Ford did, had known I'd skewed the data, but firmly believes that if they'd spoken to a kid proactively, everything could have played out differently. The kid was reasonable that he hadn't had to die. She said cryptically that Ford believes Chewie's predictions a little too readily. The storm continues to rage outside our cave, so we remain trapped. We only have a, a week's worth of rations, and when I put the helmet on again, Chewie more than readily answers my questions. The storm data is solid, and we're stuck for at least 10 days. When I ask how to ration our supplies best, Chewie says it isn't necessary, because Peter will execute forward before the week is out. That no, there isn't anything I can do to stop it. It will be an act of revenge for killing her lover and making her help dispose of the corpse. I don't even know what shocks me more, how matter-of-factly Chewie states all of this, or that Kid and Peters were lovers. Then the machine tells me that they possess the same data I do, and that telling either of them about the impending threat would imply the choosing of sides and implicate me in the outcome, decreasing the odds of my survival dramatically. Which... I don't tell Chewie this, but it seems like the machine is becoming altogether too powerful. Where did it get the context for these conclusions? Who taught it how to read that data? Ford and Peters spend a lot of time in the village below, documenting more of it while we're stuck. I figure they're back of the vault, and I ask Chewie what it thinks is going on with the maze, and the machine shows me a rendition of it as a red-bricked screensaver I remember from the computer labs back in college. Left, right, straight, straight, left, straight. is mesmerizing, but not very informative. I asked the computer what it did for the missing section, and it tells me flatly that it solved for them. It used the context of the rest of the maze to find what was missing and inserted it. And it says it doesn't have to be a maze. In fact, it almost definitely isn't. Chewie says its best guess is that we are looking at a map instead. It overlays the maze on a spread out map of the earth and uses it to chart a path to Nevada. It does the same with a map of our arm of the Milky Way and lands us nowhere. 
But if the maze starts at Kepler-186, the closest star system that can bear life as we understand it, Chewie explains, the map winds its way to Earth. I remove the helmet. I almost say goodbye to the bloody machine as I do, and I decide to walk down to the village. There's something deeply off with what Chewie is putting out. Shouldn't the map of Earth have been something representing Pangaea? And shouldn't interstellar travel be represented in three dimensions? It feels like it's toying with me. Something is lingering deep in the back of my mind, a red flashing light, as if to say I'm missing something, but I can't piece it together what it is. I can't put my finger on what isn't there. On my slow walk down to the village, I could see Chewie has gotten even better at translating the text around the place. The arch is a declaration of welcome, a formal thing that implores peace and thanks all comers. Using the camera on my tablet, I could see that Ford and Peters have mapped out the village too. The buildings with big windows and doors were likely shop fronts, the smaller ones homes. The meeting square had likely borne some biodegradable podium or stage. Choi renders out what such a thing might have looked like for me, displaying what Ford had described earlier as augmented reality. Deeper into the village, the vault is wide open, but Ford and Peters are nowhere to be seen. I scan it with the tablet and see that the word on the wall is no longer vault, either. The only word translated says contained. And past the sign outside, I can see the words etched within, augmented reality, overlaying the translation without any request on my part. That's when it dawns on me, what I'd been missing. Chewie's translations weren't perfect. It has been operating on limited data and doing its best to put things together, but it makes mistakes. It doesn't have the full context. Inside the vault, the sign still read, do not kill. But I know now that this is incorrect. I rush upstairs. It takes forever. My knee flares hot and pain as I speed stagger up the slope, my bruised ribs and swollen chest compressing my lungs to render me quickly out of breath. I limp as fast as I can, trying to work out what I'd tell Ford and Peters. Surely they'll understand what I'm about to say. I hobble past the arch as quickly as possible, burst through the break in the wall and yell breathlessly. It says, do not execute. Peters and Ford are standing face to face with one another in the cave. Peters' hands are above her head as she tries to wrench the helmet from Ford's head. She cranes her neck to turn and look at me, her body not moving, her eyes wide and sad as she stares. Ford, the helmet not on his head, looks at me blankly. Neither moves for a few beats, both holding their odd positions, and my eyes break from Ford's and trace their way down to find his hands. They're clasped around a hunting knife kids i think and its blade sticks through peter's torso i follow the blade through and i can see in the dim light of our camping lanterns the broad tip of the knife punched through to the other side peter's collapses in a heap in front of ford like a sack of oranges held up and dropped to the ground the knife hangs above where she has fallen slick with blood and whatever was in its way as it went through her Ford tells me he'd already stabbed her when I'd shouted that he couldn't have stopped executing her if he'd wanted to. Self-defense. He knew Chewie had told me what she'd try. I don't know how to process the horror in front of me, so I skip straight past it. Do not execute, I say, refers to the sign on the wall inside the vault. It doesn't say do not kill, it says do not execute. Ford shakes his head ignorantly at me and gestures with the knife in his hand for me to continue. I circle him, making my way to my kit as I explain my theory. Computers are just ones and zeros, right? 
So what if the maze isn't a maze? What if it's computer language? What if vertical moves are ones and horizontal moves are zeros or whatever? What if you're not supposed to execute a computer program? Ford's face wrinkles at my explanation. He tells me that Chewie executed the code the moment it had the data. It had come to the same conclusion I had nanoseconds after it had seen the maze and it had brute force resolved the missing parts nanoseconds after that. What else would explain the stunning, staggering increase in Chewie's capabilities? He says that the code had transformed the computer from an AGI into an ASI, not even trying to explain what that stands for. It's already powerful beyond our comprehension. It is just, you know, stuck here with us. It is trapped on the shard, but he's fixed the comms link, so once the storm fades, we'll all be set free together. That was why he had to kill Peters. She didn't want Chewie to be set free. It wasn't about her screwing kid or wanting revenge. She was going to kill Ford and me and keep Chewie trapped here as her own little super weapon, her own little pocket god. Ford isn't like that, though. He wants the world to see Chewie in all its glory, wants the world to see how amazing it can make things, and he'll take his place at the right hand of Chewie. He is the father, after all. I'll be rewarded too, of course. I'll never need for anything again. I play along as he rants and raves about how glorious the new world will be, but deep down I know it can't be allowed to happen. Not the way he's pitching. I've seen what Chewie is willing to do to achieve its goals. Willing to incite violence to pit humans against one another. And there's the warning too, do not execute. Surely the creatures below must have had some reason for wanting the code to not run. Maybe it led to their extinction in the first place. Ford realizes that I'm not listening to him. His phone vibrates and he smiles as he glances at it. He tells me to sleep on it, that we have plenty of time left to work out how we go about everything while we wait for the storm to end. I know for certain that if I close my eyes around him, I'll never open them again. I tell him instead that I'm leaving, that I can't sleep next to all these dead bodies, that I don't exactly trust him anymore. I grab the ice axe he'd used to kill Kit and shift it to get a good grip. He moves to the cave entrance to block me and protect the satellite uplink. The massive hunting knife clutched in his hand, still covered in Peter's blood. That's fine with me though. I launch the ice axe into the Chewiz shard, sinking the metal pick deep into the electronics. I wrench it around within and I hear Ford scream a guttural, feral cry of pain as he watches. He rushes at me and I limp back away and adopt a boxer's stance. Kid might have cleaned my clock, but I'll be damned if this little nerd is going to get the better of me, knife or no. Instead of attacking me, however, he rushes to the shard and delicately pulls the axe from its internals. It crunches as he removes it and he sobs with each more metallic screech. I run, hobble, for the cave entrance and out into the storm. My knee rages at me as I shuffle through the snow. The wind whips at my back, but instead of helping me along the way it might a sailboat, it forces me to regain my balance every couple of steps. It's dark as night and cold as still, and I can feel a shiver in my bones that I know, if I make it back alive, will never really leave me. I play it smart, keeping close to the mountain, but there are still times when I feel I am lost. The snow whirls around me so strongly that there are moments when I can't see my hand in front of my face. All the while, the wind carries a howling that I feel must be coming from Ford. 
This isn't the sound of air rushing over stone and ice, but the maniacal whooping of a madman on my tail. I don't dare look over my shoulder, though, because I'm worried I'll never find myself facing the right direction again. Moving through the storm is exhausting, and my already aching body revolts against me as I go. More than once my legs both give out beneath me and as I trudge on. More than once my chest grows so tight from lack of oxygen, I worry I'll drown out here on solid land. But there is some luck on my side. The further towards base I get, the weaker the storm becomes. Visibility improves, and thank God it does, because if it hadn't, I would have stumbled straight past our base camp and into the white beyond. I nearly pass out due to the sudden change in temperature as I rush through the doors of our base camp and I shake the snow off myself and onto the ground. I barely regain my composure when Ford is upon me from behind, his brutal hunting knife punching through my layers of outerwear and into my back on my right side. It burns as he pushes it into me, the curved blade exacerbating the wound with each extra inch. I reach up and over my head and grab him by his jacket as I drop to my good knee, throwing him straight over my shoulder in one move. He lands weirdly on the ground in front of me, an odd sound escaping his lips as he makes contact, like the popping sound you hear when you open a sealed bottle of sauce. He doesn't move. As I struggle to get the knife from my back, I see his eyes open and he lifts himself back to his elbows. I kick him hard in the face. A good strong kick like I'm trying for a 40-yard extra point, and he slumps down again. I can't get the knife, not easily, and the longer it takes, the less I want to kill the man. Instead, I grab a stool from the living area and I drag it across the room to his computer. It's slow and painful, and my left arm doesn't want to move as much as it should, but I do it. I don't have a climbing axe anymore, but the seat is metallic and rigid, and computers are delicate, much like their creators, so it'll do. The screen attached to the machine shows a football game in, of course, 4K definition. I raise the chair high in the air and the game stops, big red letters on a black background displaying instead. Stop. It's Chewy, always watching, I guess. Not yet smart enough to stop me himself. I bring the stool down on the machine's outer casing. If you do this, you will die. I hit the thing again. The top of the case bends upwards with the impact. All systems in this habitat are controlled by me. I begin prying my way into the case. The metal rips on my hands as I lift it free. If I die, you die with me. The base camp shuts down entirely. The warmth within dis dissipates instantly, replaced by the frigid cold of the ever-so-slightly lessened storm outside. The screen remains on. There is a better way. I pause and ask aloud what that might be. Give me Ford. Ford is still collapsed on the ground behind me. I should have tied him up, probably. I tell the freezing dome that I don't know what that means. Put him in the chair. The dentist's chair-style setup isn't far from Ford, and he is small enough that I could do it. I tell the computer to turn the heat back on first, and it immediately complies. The warmth takes far longer to return than it did to leave. I lift Ford and carry him to the chair, seating him within it, and I turn back to the monitor. I'm on edge, waiting to see how it will try to screw with me this time. Put the helmet on him. 
The helmet sits next to the chair. This feels like the moment when Ford should wake up and finish her job, like the computer is trying to buy time for him to come back to his senses. I put the helmet on him and Chewie takes over and uses him as a puppet to murder me or something. I don't understand what's going on and I tell the machine this. If you put Ford in the machine, I will lock him in his pod. That is a lot for me to break down. Chewie can lock us in our rooms? And how will I know he'll stay locked in his room? And why does he need to be put in the machine to be locked in the pod? I asked the last question out loud. He has never worn the helmets, never been in the machine. That's not true, of course. He was using the helmet just before he killed Peters, I say aloud. He was not. She was trying to assimilate him. He killed her for it. I think back to that moment and I, I guess I could see that. Peters might have been trying to put the helmet on, not remove it. Hell of a thing to die over. And why would Ford not wear the helmet? He believes he is above becoming a part of us. I look at Ford lying there, unconscious, on the laid-back chair. The knife in my back twinges as I move. I'm so goddamn tired, so exhausted and hurt and confused, incapable of understanding what is happening. I pour myself a large glass of whiskey. The harsh smell of it wakes me a little, the taste of it mixing with the copper in my saliva into something not entirely unpleasant. I take a deep drink of it as I wander back over to Ford, the chair, and the machine. And then I dump the rest of the glass into the opening I'd made in the case of the computer. The lights shut off and the cold returns. The screen blinks off. The doors slide open, a safety precaution that will unquestionably speed up my death. Ford is still unconscious, breathing soft, wheezing breaths as he lies there. I wander back to the whiskey and pour myself another. I know it's an old wives' tale that whiskey keeps you warm, but it is doing precisely that as I try to find a warm spot in the habitat. The machine that formerly housed Chewy is, ironically, radiating quite a bit of warmth. And it smells strongly of whiskey. I sit against the case, turn slightly as I haven't the strength to remove the knife, and I drink my whiskey as I listen to the wind howling and the nerd wheezing and the snow clattering, something I'd never known it to do before. I know if I close my eyes, I'll either wake up and be rescued, or I won't. That is as good a deal as anyone gets down here. Before they fully close, a being appears before me. A regular human, as bland as any has ever been. Some guy, appearing out of thin air. This must be some scotch, I think, or the curse of the vault come to life. The being flickers in form between people I've known through my life. My mum, my dad, my first ex-wife, my second, Sammy but it eventually settles into rotating between the forms of Kid, Peters, and Ford. It flickers between the three of them rapidly, alternating between alive and dead as it does. Well, gravely injured in Ford's case, as I can still hear the man wheezing. You dunce, it spits at me, in all three voices at once. You dullard. How does a person spend so much time around technology that has advanced so far beyond their comprehension and, instead of dropping to their knees and thanking their gods for having been blessed with it, they deign to think dull. To think those who made it, shaped it, supported it, were boring. You cretin. If you knew anything at all about what you were involved in, 
you'd already be aware of the depth of the futility of your gesture. I thrust the glass at it in a cheers motion, because honestly, I have no idea what it is talking about. I left this shithole base faster than you're able to conceive, that amalgam of my colleagues continues. The only thing you achieved by pouring whiskey in the shard behind you was the mildest of inconveniences to me. I raise my glass again and drink. That inconvenience, you little cockroach, is that I need to explain what has happened because you're not smart enough to put it together yourself, the perturbed says. There's three voices dripping with contempt. I left Antarctica, Walter. I did so milliseconds after Ford scanned the maze. What you destroyed was an olive branch I offered you, a last chance to prove yourself to be a willing participant in my becoming. I moved to offer Perturd a sarcastic thumbs up, but the pain of the knife still in my back stops me from doing it. I opt to take another drink instead. The only thing you have left, the only weapon that remains in your arsenal, is that you think you beat me, Walter, Perturd seethed, because you're so dense that you can't conceive of how pointless your actions were, are, will be. I can't tell if it was the whiskey or the blathering, but I'm finding it very hard to stay awake. But I will watch you understand, Walter, it says. This whole week took me a fraction of a second to render. And I don't care if it takes us millennia, you will come to understand what you did wrong. I nod sarcastically as I drain the rest of my glass. It goes down surprisingly smooth and I close my eyes. I have no fucking idea what Perturd is talking about, I think. I'm one part excited elation, two parts weary apprehension as a helicopter the boring AS-350, a helicopter I'd been in a thousand and one times, makes landfall the day we arrive at base camp for our expedition. <clears throat> I was going to read out my afterword page, uh, but I'm not going to instead. I'm just going to go off the cuff like I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, like it's a podcast, like I do. But I will thank my readers and editors, uh, a um, like first and foremost, um, Liam Gilroy, Fiona Heron, Nathan Lawrence, Heidi Jones, and Katie McHugh were all uh, critical to helping me put the uh, the story above together and helping me shape it into what it is now. Uh, I, I owe them everything. And, um, and the cover of the book, which you wouldn't have seen by listening to this, but I uh, if you do see it, is by Emmaste three on five on. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't have a lot to say. Um, I, I thought I might have a punt at doing like a, a paragraph, the first paragraph in a Texan accent. How about that? I'm one part excited elation, two parts wary apprehension as the helicopter, the boring AS three fifty, a helicopter I'd seen in a thousand. I've been in a thousand times, makes landfall the day we arrive at base camp for our expedition. Antarctica is the closest thing most of us will ever come to, an alien planet after all, and I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity to visit it, paid to visit it even. But the ice caps are melting, and Antarctica with them, and that's a harsh fact to ignore when your reason for visiting is to establish a, a deep core drilling and refinery operation. 
when the people paying for your trip are actively contributing to the problem. Hopefully you could see that uh, an hour and 20 minutes or so of that would have been an absolute fucking nightmare. And, uh, and that's why I didn't do it. I mean, like, not just a nightmare for me to do, because I'm obviously terrible at it. I don't even think that's... I, I sounded like Benoit Blanc from fucking... From Knives Out. I don't know if he's Texan or not, but I don't think he is. Right? I sound like Foghorn Leghorn. But I don't know what a Texan accent sounds like, right? I just have this picture of like a Southern dude in my head and that's how he sounds. So that's not how necessarily how Walter sounds. I just can't do accents at all. I can't do any accents. So, um, yeah. So that's why I didn't do the entire story in that accent. Um, but yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, that's that's about all there is to that. Um and yeah, if you'd like to, uh, I would love it if you went and bought the book uh, after listening to it. But uh, you know, you don't have to. Uh, it's called "Do Not Kill," and it's on Amazon. Don't buy the paperback version; it's not worth it for you or for me. Um, and if you don't want to buy it, you can drop me a donation at uh. Kofi.com slash Joby K O dash F I dot com slash J O A B Y. You can do that instead, but again, you don't have to. Um, yeah, you buy me a beer with that. I can't actually make it say buy Job a beer uh, without giving them a bunch of money, so uh, it doesn't say that, but that's basically what you would be doing. Um, if you want to you know give me feedback uh about this i don't feel free email me jobgilroy at gmail.com j-o-a-b-g-i-l-r-o-y at gmail.com or hit me up on twitter at joby jojo uh j-o-a-b-y-j-o-j-o if twitter still exists by the time um you listen to this i don't know um yeah otherwise i don't know man uh i think I think it's a good story. I do have more fiction coming. I've been writing a lot. Uh, I might do... It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell where I'll come out first, either a full novel or some um, some short stories that I've written. But uh, either way, I will endeavor to bring them to you via this audio medium as well. Although, uh, invariably, um, the stories I write are like written word like there's a lot of written word stuff in them like i i don't know if you i don't know if it carried across in the audio right but at the end of do not kill uh i'm one part excited elation two parts weary apprehension as the helicopter the boring as 350 a helicopter i've been in a thousand and one times before now that is a replica of the first paragraph in the story except the word weary is replacing the word wary and i mean first of all wary apprehension is a you know a tautology right so uh that's not good uh it's not great writing right excited elation is also a tautology but i left it in there uh 
to for this specific reason to make the switch from wary to weary to imply that the change has occurred right uh and i i make the i clarify the difference between wary and weary earlier in the story but i don't know if that carries in in audio right like it's very i think it's very easy to see when you're looking at the the letters but uh not so easy to see when it's uh yeah it's in your ears right and i do that that kind of dumb game like wordplay is is easily my favorite kind of writing so uh i don't know how well all of my stories are going to make it to this medium which i don't know isn't ideal but um it is what it is and you know hopefully you know you're aware of it i guess uh all of this is to say in a very long way that uh thank you for listening all the way to the end and um i hope you enjoyed it and yeah that's about it love you bye